0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. New York, 1888. The miracle of electric light is in its infancy. Thomas Edison has won the race to the patent office and is suing the only remaining rival, George Westinghouse, for the unheard of sum of only of $1 billion. And to defend himself, Westinghouse makes a surprising choice in his t- attorney. He hires an untested 26-year-old fresh out of Columbia Law School named Paul Kravath. Uh, the the uh, task falling, uh, facing Paul is beyond daunting. Edison proves to be a formidable, wily, and dangerous opponent. Yet this young, unknown attorney shares with his famous opponent a compulsion to win at all costs. How will he do it? As he takes greater and greater risks, he'll find that everyone in his path is playing their own game, and no one is quite who they seem. Graham Morris' new novel is called The Last Days of Night. It's based on actual events. It's about the nature of genius, the cost of ambition, and the battle to electrify America. Graham Moore is New York Times Best-Selling Novelist, Academy Award-winning screenwriter. Screenplay for The Imitation Game won the Academy Award and Writers Guild of America Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. In 2015, it was nominated for BAFTA and Golden Globe. And Graham Moore joins uh, me now. Graham Moore, thank you.
1: Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for chatting.
0: Uh, so I just want to take uh, get into the last days of the night. But before we do that, I just want to take maybe five minutes to uh, talk about the the whole whirlwind ex, uh, experience of, uh, of winning an Oscar the the tension that came from the imitation game that that uh, I don't know, is that life changing how does that affect you? Oh, yeah, yes. All
1: that it feels like it was you know now it's been a year it feels like this strange dream that I've woken up from and I you know put her around my kitchen and make breakfast in the morning and I'm like is that is that something that really happened that did happen right? There's <laughs> video of it it's recorded <laughs> online somewhere
2: that's right.
0: Um, it
1: feels very strange to remember but uh, yeah it certainly wasn't something myself or any of us involved in the film um, saw coming, you know. It was a small, independent film that I sort of made with my friends, um, and to then have that whole process end up with me on stage at the Academy Awards was surreal, to say the very least.
0: And this was, a, I've been reading, a, it was on a list called The Blacklist. It's not, not for the old, you know, uh, communist blacklist this blacklist of top films that have not been made yet so it made that list in 2011 did get made in in 2014 released in 2014 uh so yeah
1: that's right it was something you know it was a script that i i had written it um i think starting in the summer of 2010 it was just something it was a story that i would always wanted to tell um you know i'd always been really captivated by the story of alan turing so many of my own Obsessions and fascinations and interested and interest seemed um, encapsulated by Alan Turing's personal story, and it always seemed like this um, this wonderful moment. I mean, if, if, it felt as if if anyone deserved a feature film treatment of their life, it was Alan Turing. Um, and it always shocked me that no one had uh, no one had made one. So, you know, as I I wrote my first novel and that came out, and I uh, kind of moved to Hollywood and. Did some screenwriting, and I'd always call my agents and managers and things and say, "Hey, you know, um, there's this film I want to write uh, about Alan Turing," and they would all sort of say, "You know, mathematicians in the 1940s in England and code breaking—you know, we can feel our eyes rolling <laughs> from here. Uh, you know, no one will ever make that film. It's not commercial enough. It's—you uh, know—that's there's no way that that movie will be a big hit. Don't write it." And then. Uh, I was very lucky to finally get the opportunity to, to do it, and I sort of met a bunch of creative collaborators who were just as passionate about telling the story as I did, and we all started working on it together, and I you know, wrote that script on spec for free um, with my friends, the producers who'd never made a film before, and we just sort of said, this is an important story that we adore, and we really want to tell it on the big, big screen, and even though none of us have ever done this before, we're going we're gonna to go do it. So it was pretty flattering when then, you know, we finished the script, and people seem to respond to it.
0: Uh, ended up being made with Benedict Cumberbatch uh, in, in the you know the, the leading role. Uh, it was a commercial and critical success. Then you end up on the on the stage at the the Oscars, um, and I want to I want to play just a bit of your speech. It's a very moving speech, um, and and I think this will speak to anyone in our audience here who maybe feels a, a bit uh, different. Let's, let's hear this. This is Graham Moore uh, accepting the Oscar for best adapted to uh, screenplay.
2: So here's, here's the thing. Um,
1: Alan Turing never got to stand on a stage like this and look out at all of these disconcertingly attractive faces. And uh, I do.
2: And that's the most unfair thing I think I've ever heard. Um, so in this brief time here, what I want to use it to do is, is to say this. Um, When I was 16 years old, I tried to kill myself um, because I felt weird, and I felt different, and I felt like I did not belong. And now I'm standing here, and so I would like for this moment to be for that kid out there who feels like she's weird, or she's different, or she doesn't fit in anywhere, Yes, you do. I promise you do. You do. Stay weird, stay different, and then when it's your turn and you are standing on the stage, please pass the same message to the next person who comes along. Thank you so much. I love you guys.
0: So that's a great message. Uh, first of all, I, I, you held it together. I think if I'm accepting an Oscar up there, I'd, I don't know. My mind would go blank, I think.
1: <laughs> you know, no one tells you how bright it is. Um, mm. In a way, it's almost a help because the lights uh, on the stage are so bright that you really can't see anyone's faces. Um, all you see is this big red clock that says 45 seconds as soon as you step on stage, and that's that's all the time you have in the world. And especially um, as as a writer, um, I was quite aware that this was you know the only time that I would have 45 seconds on television with that sort of audience in my life. Uh, so it felt appropriate to use it for something meaningful.
0: Uh, and so you you did use this to send out this message, very moving message. Um, and uh, your message is "stay weird." What what are you saying there to to the kids?
1: Uh, I think I was saying that uh, we all we all feel like outsiders in our life at different points. And I, you know, told a brief story about feeling that way myself. And I think that was one of the messages of our film as well of the Imitation Game. And I, I think I was saying that, um, you know, we, we find homes and places to belong unexpectedly, and even if it feels like one might not belong, uh, one does.
0: Um, it, it, so just stay the course. Listen to your, to, you know, your own voices. I guess that's. Uh, and you did talk about suicide. There are far too many of our young people commit suicide. I, I think because of. I mean, because of uh, depression, because of other things, but, but it's some because they don't feel like they have any place to fit in.
1: Yeah, I think I was lucky as a young person that I had a wonderful family and support network around me to uh, keep me through some of the darker patches. And uh, not everyone is so fortunate, but I think having that message of, you know, there are there are people going through this too. You're not alone in this. I think that these issues are more common then are frequently discussed, and so I was glad to be able to sort of publicly say, "Hey, this is something that I went through, and I might imagine that other people in the audience are going through similar things. And just so you know, you're not alone in this. And uh, I am very fortunate to now get to, you know, or then get to stand on that stage and send that message
0: across." Have you got any feedback, especially from young people, or any feedback at all from that? I've noticed it's been written up in the press as is one of the better speeches of that year. But have you got feedback?
1: Yeah, it was pretty lovely. I mean, sort of going about my life for the next months, and even now, and having people, you know, come up to me on the street or in a restaurant or something, and say nice things or say how much the speech meant to them. Um, you know, it was a little bit surreal. The Oscar bubble is its own strange thing, and I spent months doing, you know, award shows and and all that stuff. And so then it was nice to kind of return back to my real life um, and go back to writing and finish this book and do all the things that I sort of got, in, got into writing to do, to actually write, um, and then to sort of... Still get these messages even now. Probably about once a month, I'll have someone come down the street and, you know, tell me a story about themselves or someone in their family, um, and it's always very, um, very generous and very open of people. Um, so that's been, I think, one thing that's been lovely for me is seeing other people experience um, these experience that message. Uh, as as a call to be able to talk about these things publicly, to not have to sort of hide these stories in their own lives. And mm-hmm. so um, that is that is what I hope the big takeaway from it is, that, that from my, in that brief moment on a stage at an awards show sharing the story, other people feel more comfortable sharing their own stories as well. Mm,
0: yeah, must be very gratifying. One more thing on the imitation game. You said you, you were uh, attracted, obsessed to this the, the story of Alan Turing. And I, I guess, the, you know, learning more about you, it connects up. That's part of the message of this film, isn't it? It's finding finding place and acceptance.
1: I think Turing Turing was someone who is an outsider from the culture around him for so many different reasons. You know, he was... um, uh, Turing was a gay man at a time when that was literally criminal in in England in the 50s. Um, He was also the smartest person in every room, that he entered. Um, he was, I would suggest, one of you know, the great scientists of the 20th century, one of the great minds of the 20th century. Um, he also was someone who I think we would now describe as being on the, um, on the autism spectrum. That wasn't a concept or a term that quite existed at the time, but I would suggest based on interviews with people who knew him, um, based on talking to people who were around him a lot, that that seems uh, like an accurate way of describing him uh you know i think that so so he was he felt to me like the outsider's outsider you know he had so many different um things that kind of made him stand apart from the world around him and yet he was almost singularly responsible for so much of the modern world i mean he was the guy who came up with the the framework behind which the british broke the german codes during the second world war which directly led to the allied victory in the war he was the guy who conceptualized what we now call the modern computer i mean so much of what we have is thanks to him and he ended up being the sort of forgotten figure uh despite all of that so so he was this uh subject of great kind of inspiration and meaning for me Mm.
0: Let's take a brief break. When we come back, uh, I want to jump into the last days of night. This is some fascinating history. Uh, You have these great inventors, uh, Titanic battle, billion-dollar lawsuit. Graham Moore takes us into this world. Uh, It's the last days of night. Let's take a brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State Historical Society hosting the Rural Utah Western Issues Conference. Friday, September 30th, in West Valley City. Agenda and registration information available at history.utah.gov.
2: Welcome to Science by the Slice. USU mathematician Nathan Gere understands challenges his students face as they tackle new math skills because he himself has worked on certain math problems years. Gear says students get discouraged because they can't solve problems immediately. Getting stuck, he explains, is part of the learning process. To make math more accessible, Gear is developing three- to five-minute podcasts to acquaint students with new vocabulary and orient them to new material prior to class lectures. His goal is to help students more quickly grasp core messages and make math learning less intimidating.
1: This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines details at usu.edu/science
0: Next time on Philosophy Talk, magical thinking. Human beings are so prone to magical thinking. Well, what's wrong with hoping that things turn out the way you want?
2: It's for dreamers and losers, John.
0: Well, how else are we going to cut taxes, increase spending, and balance the budget if we don't use magical thinking? Well, you got me there. Magical thinking, next time on Philosophy Talk.
2: Join us Tuesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio.
0: We're back with uh, Graham Moore. The Last Days of Night is the novel, and uh, Graham Moore, as we've been hearing, is the uh, Oscar-winning screenwriter for The Imitation Game. Uh, He's also New York Times best-selling novelist of the Sherlockian, and uh, he's out with a new book. It's called The Last Days of Night. Uh, It starts in New York, 1888, the miracle of electric lights in its infancy. We're going to Learn about Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse and Nikola Tesla and uh, Graham Moore um, sees this world has us see this world through the eyes of a young attorney just out of uh, Columbia Law School, hired by George Westinghouse to, uh, to defend a lawsuit that Edison has uh, has sued Westinghouse. Uh, so I want to jump in uh, here. The, the thing that when I, when I came to the just the novel uh, you know cold here. Um, uh, the first thought I had—it uh, and was interesting to, to, to see—you've uh, talked about this. You talk about it in the novel. This is such um, such a big leap for the for the average person. You go from gas light to electric light, and uh, uh, it, it, I'm hard pressed to think of a, a bigger change that uh, that ordinary citizens went through.
1: Yeah, that was exactly uh, one of the things that had gotten me so excited about writing about this period from the start. What felt to me like this hinge moment in history, when the night sky was lit up for the first time. I mean, if you read the diaries, the letters of people living in New York and in in all of America in the 1870s and 1880s, their descriptions of seeing electric light for the first time are shocking in some cases literally i mean they describe it as if they were seeing a new color for the very first time they'd never seen anything like it um, everything looked different and you get you start getting all these these social changes that result from it as well uh... you know public squares are now lit up better at nighttime which means that crime rates go down it's hard to mug someone if it's much brighter out um, you start factories can now run twenty four hours a day because there's nothing uh, you know, it's it's light enough for workers to uh, work twenty four hours, which starts creating all these conflicts, you know, between labor and management, and starts laying the grounds for a lot of these industrial age uh, labor conflicts. Uh, so it's it's this tremendous um, this tremendous social change, and and this idea of living through a period where you are seeing something brand new for the first time, seeing something that no one had ever seen before. Um, I found that very moving, and I kept thinking, you know, when was the last time, when was the last time any of us saw something truly new, truly novel? I'm not quite sure.
0: Yeah, I was. I was trying to think of an uh, analogous experience. I was trying to think for myself. When did I first use the internet? But it, it was is it more gradual, much more gradual. I think. Well,
1: yeah. People. Do you remember it? Do you remember like a I, first uh, email, or uh, first website? Yeah,
0: I don't really. No, I, I mean, I, I just we I just kind of gradually transitioned into it. I guess. I mean, it was pretty cool, yeah, you know, but...
1: And that was what was so remarkable about, exactly as you say, about electric light, was it was a sudden thing. I mean, suddenly one day you walk into a room and there's electric light and it looks unlike anything you've ever seen. Um, and and so that's why I wanted to write about the story from the perspective of of people on the ground, of people who are sort of living through this time, Um you know the story is is not told from the perspective of thomas edison or george westinghouse or nikola tesla it's told from the perspective of this young ambitious 26 year old lawyer who is trying to make sense of the lives and rivalries of this great genius and you know in an early scene he sees electric light for the first time in the same way that anyone living through the period would
0: uh, so this is uh paul do you say it kravath
1: uh yeah i say kravath
0: kravath kravath the interesting thing about it, and this is a real person.
1: Uh, he is. Every every major character in the novel is real. Um, all the basic contours of the story are real. Um, you know, I'm, as you can tell, very excited about telling these true stories. Um, and this is a story that, once I realized that Paul Crevasse's story hadn't been told before, I knew that was where I wanted to... Focus my narrative. You know, you'd, I'd seen things about Thomas Edison, um, some things about Nikola Tesla, George Westinghouse. Always ends up, I think, being a forgotten figure in this, or not as well talked about, because um, I think he deserves a lot more credit than he's often given. But um, you know, early on, the question that motivated me was, okay, I, how did three different people? Edison, Westinghouse, and Tesla each think they were the ones who invented the light bulb. How did these three different men each think that they were they were responsible for this great act of invention? What was the source of their rivalry? You know, in some sense, they were three guys who should have been very close. They should have understood each other better than anyone else did, and yet they came to really despise each other. Um, and that seems so really interesting to me that the idea that people who kind of had the same job and did the same thing but for different reasons, ended up uh, becoming these great rivals. And so as I started researching, you know, and I went through the first year or two of the process, was really just tons and tons of researching through scientific journals from the period, uh, newspapers, magazines, diaries, biographies of the relevant players. My question was, you know, whose story did I want to tell? Which of, which of these scientists um, did I want to show the story from? Uh, which perspective, and and that's when I sort of stumbled on Paul Cravath, who was Westinghouse's lawyer, and he was not a scientist. He was this ambitious, clever, but essentially, you know, normal guy who found himself in way over his head when Westinghouse fires him for his first case to represent him against Thomas Edison, who at that point was probably the most famous man in America. Um, I mean, it's 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 as if. It's as if, you know, the OJ trial of the period or something was being uh, litigated by a lawyer who'd never been in a courtroom before. Um, It was this crazy experience for Paul. And so for me, that felt like such a great way into the story to tell it all from, from his perspective, this guy who's in over his head, who's, you know sitting across a conference table from Thomas Edison for the first time, and he's quaking in his boots and trying not to let anyone see it, um, because that's what any of us would have felt like uh, in the presence of these commanding historical figures. Um, And so, you know, when I first started researching, it was amazing that no one had really written about Paul Kravath. You know, the law firm that he would end up uh, being, being named after him that he would essentially found, uh, you know, it still exists. They're still one of the largest law firms in America. Um, but he, the historical figure, was sort of not talked about very much. Um, but he provided this perfect lens into the story. He felt like me or you or anyone um, who, you know, was not the once in a generation genius uh, that Thomas Edison is, not to speak for you in this situation. Um, but he was he was just this clever guy who was. Uh, trying to make sense of it all as he was seeing electric light for the first time and uh, trying to hold his own against these uh, commanding figures.
0: It's interesting to see uh, these three iconic figures, Edison, Westinghouse, and um, and Tesla, through the eyes of Paul Kravath. And of course, that was your purpose. Uh, because especially in the case of Edison, at least for a time, and until you know, recent times, Edison was became sort of a saint, didn't he? He became uh, he became the epitome of perseverance, In his famous quote Yeah, you know, I think if, you is, you know, it's one
1: of those. If you if you look in a if you look in a lower school textbook, or you ask a, a you know a ten year old or something who invented the light bulb, they'll say Thomas Edison, and I think his legend. Uh, spread far and wide um, as this kind of great inventor. Um, and, and in some sense, it's very well deserved. Um, I don't want to take something away from Edison. I mean, he was this amazing uh, kind of rags to riches American success story. Edison was sort of literally homeless as a teenager. I mean, he was riding, when he was 16, he was riding on the back of railway cars selling candy to, you know, up and down the, the cars on these trains in Michigan. Um, and then by the time he's 30, he's living on one of the largest mansions on Fifth Avenue. Um, that is the kind of just unprecedented self-made success that Thomas Edison was. Um, and he did it all by inventing these things, um, starting with telegraph equipment and working on the telephone and then onto the light bulb and a million other devices. Um, but Edison also got that far by being quite a good salesman. Um, you, don't, you don't sell a lot of light bulbs unless you're very good at selling them. And that's mm-hmm. something that Edison was quite good at. Um, he, I would suggest that he essentially invented the modern concept of branding. Edison was the first guy who took all of the different products that were coming out of his lab. He would put the word Edison on the side of them in the same font, the same size, on all sorts of different products. That did different things um, and he, he put the word Edison inside an oval that looked just like a cattle brand um, and that's where we that's why we call it branding today hmm. um, and that is he, that was very conscious on his part I mean he wanted the name Edison to mean something to signify something um, to and and he was quite successful at it so he was very good at, at playing the press and um Kind of burnishing his own image and telling these own myths about his life and myths about his process of invention. Um, and uh, that is that's no small thing either. and that is, was certainly a valuable skill. Um, and you know his legend is obviously, if you ask, if you ask anyone now, you know, whose name is better known, certainly in association with the light bulb, Edison, Westinghouse, or Tesla, I think the answer is pretty clear, Mm -hmm. even though the truth is a little more
0: complicated. It is, yeah, which is one of the points of the novel. Um, You you have, uh, sprinkled throughout the book, you have quotes from modern-day inventors or entrepreneurs. You you have quotes from some of these um, gentlemen that you talk about in the book as well. I want to read this one. This is uh, uh, from part one. Um, this is Bill Gates. Don't you understand that Steve doesn't know anything about technology? He's just a super salesman. He doesn't know anything about engineering. And 99% of what he says and thinks is wrong. I assume he's talking about Steve Ballmer? <laughs>
1: Uh, he's talking about Steve Jobs. Oh, Steve! Oh, Steve um, Jobs.
0: Okay, not his partner, but but the rival. Yeah. Okay. No,
1: it's, it's yes, his rival, Jobs, and then the book follows that with a quote from Edison, where he, uh, sorry, from from Jobs, where he says some rather unflattering things about about Gates. Y- yeah. Yeah. Um, and but exactly what you're pointing out is is one of the things that I got so excited about with the book was these kind of very eerie tensions um, and resonances between the arguments between. Edison and Westinghouse and the modern-day arguments between comparable scientific and technological figures like uh, Jobs, like Gates, Um, you know, exactly as you were just describing, you know, uh, Gates would, well, uh, Gates would always say about Jobs, oh, you know, that guy isn't really a scientist. He's not really an engineer. He's just this great salesman. Uh, which is, you know, pretty much word for word what Westinghouse would say about Edison, and then conversely, you know, Jobs would always say back to Gates, "This guy has no vision. Uh, like he doesn't really understand how technology works. He, he's, he's not. Uh, he doesn't have the vision to really um, change anything fundamentally. Um, he's just sort of good at tinkering, which is also exactly what Edison would say about Westinghouse." Um, I think these dynamics of kind of who's a real scientist, who's a real engineer, who's just a salesman—is there something necessarily wrong with that? Uh, I think we saw them in the 19th century. I think we saw them in you know the 1990s and early aughts with Edison and, or with uh, Gates and Jobs. And you know, I keep wondering who our sort of today's equivalents are. If it's Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, um, or, or something like that. I think it's a fascinating debate about what it means to invent something, what it means to create new technology.
0: What do you think the next horizon is? You mentioned Musk, uh, you know, the, we've got some of these big time intrep- entrepreneurs, uh, going to space. Is it the person who can take us to Mars? What's, what's the next horizon? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I think those are really good questions. I think, um, and I think it—you know—it obviously be easier to figure out in hindsight. I think Musk certainly has to be at the top of anyone's list of uh, Edisonian figures um, of our of our day and age. I mean, he's he's very good at branding. Um, I think he's very good at at telling a good story about what he's doing. Um, and I think you know you see it with the current debate about about self-driving cars. That seems to be a near-term. Uh, issue that's going to be a big deal. You have Musk sort of early out ahead of it, but you know, uh, BMW, Mercedes, uh, Chevy. I mean, they're right on his heels, and so you start getting these questions of kind of who's inventing what and are they borrowing concepts from each other? And you know, what I would argue is that borrowing concepts from each other and y- taking inspiration from each other's work is. It drives the inventors crazy, but I think that's how progress happens. Yeah. Um, I don't think that any one inventor is ever responsible for anything truly world-changing. Yeah. I think we tend to, there's this cultural f- uh, fiction where we we always want to say that, you know, who is the guy who invented the light bulb? Who is going to be the person who invents self-driving cars? And what I'll say, my my suggestion would be that is—it's not one person. There's there may be one name who starts getting the credit for it, and that's certainly what happened with the light bulb. But it's more complicated than that. Um, you know, in the case of the light bulb, you've got Edison who sort of initially planted his flag in the ground there, but then Westinghouse and Tesla improved Edison's light bulbs so dramatically that I would argue that you know the thing we now call the light bulb the thing we now call electric light has much more to do with what Westinghouse and Tesla did than what Edison initially did. Um, And we'll see that, I think, with self-driving cars now, um, which are really, you know, the impression I get from people I've talked to in the field are that we're really five to 10 years away from ubiquity, that within five to 10 years, you know, they will be all over the the road and people won't be touching steering wheels anymore, um, which is, I can't tell if that's terrifying or shocking or amazing. Maybe that will be the next truly new thing we see.
0: Yeah, it's it's some of these things uh, are pretty spectacular, and maybe would approach, you know, the the advent of the light bulb an l- electrified city. But that must have been pretty spectacular. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that, get into talking about Tesla and Westinghouse uh, as we go along here as well. Let's take another brief break. We're talking with Graham Moore, New York Times bestselling author of The Sherlockian. He's also the uh, screenwriter for The Imitation Game. He won the Academy Award for that. Uh, And the new novel is The Last Days of Night.
2: I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, imagine you're a kid who grows up to become a professional athlete, and now your mom thinks she's entitled to a
0: share of your new riches. She just said I owe a million dollars, you know, because I had you, I raised you.
2: Maybe kids should pay back their parents for raising them. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming
0: on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement, online at utahumanities.org.
3: Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including musical performances, festivals, live theater, art shows, dance, educational or guest lectures, workshops, volunteer opportunities, and more. We have a new, more user-friendly submission page. Just visit the UPR website at upr.org and click on the community calendar link. There, you can review the submission guidelines.
0: We're back with uh, Graham Moore, New York Times bestselling author of The Sherlockian. He is uh, author, uh, most recently, of The Last Days of Night. And Graham Moore won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for The Imitation Game. Um, and um, I want to talk a bit about um, these two other fascinating uh, giants, maybe starting with Nikola Tesla. Um, he is... Uh, the stereotype is he's the archetype of the mad genius, right? He definitely, mm-hmm. definitely eccentric. You could say that about him.
1: Um, I think that's very accurate. Um, he was certainly eccentric. He was certainly a genius. Um, I think that he had, a, you know, he had a different biography from Edison. Although, in some sense, I mean, they were both very self-made men. Uh, Tesla was, you know, whereas Edison had come from Michigan, Tesla came from a small town in what is now Serbia. Um, went to Paris for a little while and then made his way to New York. He has this great story that sounds made up, but as far as I can tell it's actually true um, where he, he arrives in New York in the harbor with literally a nickel in his pocket. that's all he has. And he'd met someone who worked for Thomas Edison before. so he um, sort of marches into Edison's Fifth Avenue office and says, "I'm Nikola Tesla. Um, I'm here from Europe. Uh, I want a job." And they all sort of laugh at him because he has a thick accent um, and he's, he's he's really tall. And he's like six six. Um, it's a funny way of speaking, and uh, just this gangly guy. And uh, the, Edison and his team sort of says, "Okay, Tesla, uh, sure you can have a job. We have this. We have this part that broke, um, and they'd they had this thing that just broke in their system. And the guy was supposed to be coming from Boston to fix it, but they needed this one guy from Boston. It was going to take two weeks, and it was driving them crazy. And sort of to." to get rid of tesla they said all right tell you what stay here overnight if you can fix this thing tonight then you have a job we're going to go home and they sort of you know with a chuckle laugh go home go to bed Uh, and of course they come back in the morning and tesla has fixed it Uh, and no one thought it was possible they were going to wait two weeks Uh, and so tesla started to work for edison for a little while got in a massive fight with edison quits goes off on his own then ended up working for Westinghouse for a bit, got in a massive fight with Westinghouse and then quit. Um, He was someone who you can tell from the story, did not do well working with others, uh, as you said, the the sort of lone (laughs) mad genius. (laughs) I think we would certainly describe him in modern terms as being schizophrenic, um, Mm. that, you know, it was not a word that existed in 1880, but I think it's accurate. Uh, You know, he had visions, he heard voices, and he would literally describe, in his diary, he would say that these visions he saw in front of him, which which terrified him. I mean, he was, you know, suddenly, he'd be sitting there, and suddenly the table in front of him would appear to be bursting into flames, um, and it was all in his head. Um, and he would say uh, in his diaries that these visions were directly responsible for his insights into technology, that he would see something in them that would then inspire him to go back to his notebook and jot down the next great breakthrough. And that's that's pretty amazing. And so he was this interesting contrast to Edison and then to Westinghouse. Whereas if Edison was this great salesman, Tesla was the idea man. You know, once he, he he never liked to finish things, and this is I think one of the difficulties in his career and why he had trouble working in the sort of more corporate environments of Edison's laboratory or Westinghouse's. You know, once he had the idea for a piece of technology, and he knew that it worked, like he knew in his own heart that this thing was going to work, he wouldn't finish it. He would just leave. Uh, He would move on to the next thing, the next big breakthrough. You know, they had barely gotten the light bulb to work when Tesla sort of announces that he wants to go off and work on wireless telephones. And literally, that's what he said. He called them wireless telephones. Mm. And everyone at the time said, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like the telephone barely works. Mm-hmm you know, no, no, how many Americans were even using telephones in 1880? It was very few. They certainly weren't ubiquitous. Um, and he sort of had some idea to make them work wirelessly, which was technology, you know, 110 years ahead of its time. Yeah. Uh, but he sort of saw that that was the next thing that excited him, um, and then would sort of go off and work on that for a while. And so, you know, I became so excited about this idea of, what it means to what it means to create something, you know. If if Edison was such a great salesman, te- Tesla was was all ideas. He was performing for an audience of only himself. Once he knew in his own mind that something was good, he was done. And I think for everyone who makes something, there's there's a little part of Tesla in
0: all of us. I I love the uh, the title of chapter nine. Mister Tesla has something he would not like to show you. <laughs> <We're kidding. laughs> yes,
1: well, and that was the thing that, either, that, that is a, in that chapter he gives a public demonstration of some of his brand new electrical technology, and that's that 's a real event. He really did do that demonstration in the novel. Some of the dialogue that he delivers is word for word from the actual speech he gave that night, mm-hmm. some of it uh, i've kind of condensed it and shortened some bits and reworked it a little bit, but some of those lines are what he actually said that night, uh, and the book is sort of generally like that where I would suggest that all the major events of the book did happen, but I've kind of fudged the timelines and moved things around to sort of help push the narrative forward, um, but almost on a sentence by sentence level, you know you'll have like one sentence that is you know from a New York Times account of what happened that day, and then the next sentence will be something I've kind of imagined because we don't know you know the actual details of, of the next moment. Right. Uh, but so he's, he was, he was very reluctant to make these public demonstrations. I mean, you can imagine, we don't have audio of him speaking, uh, you know, because it was the 1880s, but he, all the reports sort of have him being very hard to he, understand. Um, and people have different sort of explanations for why. It was like, uh, some people said it was because of a thick accent. Other people said he just sort of had a funny, lilt his speech, a funny way of talking. Um, and he was not very good. I don't think eye contact was his strong suit. Um, he, was not, he was not much of a public speaker, so when he was forced to kind of demonstrate some of his technology, it did not go very well. So the opposite of Edison, who would put on... I mean, Edison, for a time, was basically like the Ringling Brothers circus, or he was, he was P.T. Barnum. I mean, he was putting on these shows of his technology. Um, and Tesla didn't quite... Couldn't quite do that. Um, and so I think, you know, again, if you look at that as the, the Gates and Jobs sort of comparison, um, you know, Jobs is famous for his presentations, right, for or, putting on his black turtleneck and going on a stage and kind of giving these amazing speeches and launches of these new products, whereas Gates always stayed behind the scenes. You know, you don't associate him with uh, doing a ton of press. He didn't put his name out there in quite the same way.
0: I want to get into talking about George Westinghouse. He, he's uh, Edison, very you know colorful, very well known, um, Nikola Tesla even more colorful and, and not as well known until I think recent times. Uh, but first I want to uh, hit this head on and, and we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but you posed some very interesting questions about invention. Who is the inventor? The one with the idea, the one who makes a working model, or the one to obtain the patent?
1: Yeah, I think that is uh, an excellent way of, of, of framing the question of the novel. You know, Edison was the one who ended up getting the patent, um, but then a few years on the light bulb, and, but then a few years later, Westinghouse, essentially based on some pioneering work that Tesla did, just m- improves it by an order of magnitude. Um, you know, and I would suggest the order of magnitude that Westinghouse, based on Tesla's work, End up improving it is so great; it's it's almost a different thing. Um, and this was sort of this was the why the law becomes uh, kind of the folk that why the law became the battleground for this fight because you know Edison is saying you stole my idea, and Westinghouse is saying no, 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 I improved it so much that it's. Like America needs this. It's better for people if they have this technology. Um, and it's true. Like Edison's Edison's light bulb wasn't very good. His system wasn't that good, uh, it, but it was first. And so I think that's an interesting question about who sort of gets the credit for it. And I'll say not to give away the ending of the book. You know, this goes this goes all the way to the Supreme Court. well wow. uh, Paul Kravath, our wow. young lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, sort of fights this all the way to the Supreme Court and. Edison wins. Um, uh, Edison wins the lawsuit, but Westinghouse wins the war. Yeah, and if, yeah, you, if you or anyone listening to this, you know you look around at the light bulbs above you or next to you and the electrical equipment that's all around you, that is all running on Westinghouse's system. It is, it's Westinghouse, based on Tesla's work, who lights and electrifies the United States. But, Esla want, but Edison won the court case, and sort of how that happened is the story of, of the novel.
0: Yeah, fascinating story. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, Westinghouse won the war, as you just said. Uh, the you know DC versus AC. Westinghouse is AC. Uh, he 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 wins the war in the long long run. Uh, but we have kind of a vague idea of Westinghouse. My vague idea, uh, probably uninformed, is he he's less the inventor, more the businessman. He's more of the guy that made, made everything work. Uh,
1: I think that is accurate, and I would, I would stake my claim to defending that as an accomplishment in its own right. I think we think there's this cultural thing where I think we say, oh, he's just a businessman. Like, he doesn't deserve the, the credit for the real genius. And what I would suggest is that there's a, there's a genius in that, too. Um, you know, Westinghouse's, Westinghouse's lab and factories work very differently from Edison's. Um, I, what I would suggest is that if, if Edison was all about the public, it was all about selling, and if, Ed, and if Tesla was all about his own mind, all about pleasing himself, Westinghouse was the one focused on the product itself. Westinghouse didn't care if he sold the most light bulbs or if he was first with the idea for the light bulb. He wanted to make, he wanted to manufacture the very best light bulbs in the world. It was all about quality for him. And maybe they'd be a little more expensive. Maybe it would take a little bit longer to reach the market. But he felt, I think in this very noble way, that in the end, quality would win out. And I think he had this faith in good technology uh, and, in, and in the best technology winning in the end. And I, and I would suggest he had a faith in kind of the American people deserving the best technology. I think he was offended by Edison. I think he was offended that Edison was so concerned with being first and so concerned with being famous that he would put out what Westinghouse felt were subpar products because quality takes time and quality takes effort. I, I look at Westinghouse as this great craftsman. Um, and but but as you know, he was like a, a master cobbler or something. But as such, you know he he wasn't, he was never first to anything, um, never in his life. I mean, Edison, if you look at it, Edison kind of got famous initially, got quite successful initially on um, telegraph and telephone technology, which was kind of the bleeding edge of, of new technology in the in the 1870s. Uh, Westinghouse uh, was more of a solidly middle-class guy from birth, and he his like first big invention was this extremely complicated technique that uh, for for brakes for railroad trains, he could make trains brake a little bit more efficiently. It was kind of like the least sexy, least cool, least cutting edge thing ever, right? Like trains have been around forever. Um, there was nothing glamorous about this technology, but if you owned a railroad, being able to make trains brake more efficiently was tremendously valuable. And so, Westinghouse, you know, made become the richest of all of them. I mean, he made so much money off of this train thing. Uh, he, There's this story that I love where the railroads, as a thank you, just not even part of his fee, but as a thank you for this device, um, the railroads don't just buy him his own train car. They build him his own train line <laughs> that runs from hmm. Pittsburgh to his home uh, a few miles uh, outside Pittsburgh in a suburb. Uh, hmm. That was the value of Westinghouse's work. Hmm. Um, and it was a similar thing where he went and said, you know, trains aren't breaking efficiently. I can, I can make this better. I'm looking at the technology that exists, and I can make this work a little bit better. And that's what he did with Edison's uh, work. And I think that uh, it, is, it is less glamorous than, than what Edison did, but I would argue no less valuable.
0: just have uh, oh, three or four minutes left in the conversation. I want to end... Uh where we began. Um, the the title is The Last Days of Night. And uh, y- you went back and you read uh, diaries and journals and newspapers. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit more about what a change this was to go from gaslight to electrified cities and electrified homes. Um, it It's something that we said the beginning the program, we can't hard, hard press to find a parallel for in our day.
1: It is. I think it's something that kept stunning me the more I read about it, how, how shocked people were by this process of, of electrification. And if you think about it, you know some of the new things we've seen in our lifetime are, are new technology that is of uncertain value when it is first introduced. Um, I'm sure we can all remember. I remember when the car phone came out, uh, and then the cell phone, and everyone said, what? Is that really useful? What are we going to do with that? Who wants to be on the phone in their car? Um, I remember my mom had a car phone when I was a kid, and you know her friends would tease her about it. It was like, who needs to call you when you're in your car? And um, I think I was, I was, I think the first person I knew who had a cell phone because I lived across, I grew up in Chicago, and I grew up across town from where I went to high school. And so I would, you know, as soon as I got my driver's license, I drove a carpool of these other kids across town to the school and I think all the parents kind of chipped in together to get me a cell phone in case I got in an accident or something. I'm not sure what the purpose was, but it was uh, very sweet. And we're getting the cell phone and everyone saying to me, uh, my friends at school would say, what are you going to do with a cell phone? Who's going to call you? Who needs to call you while you're driving? Who needs to call you, you know, when you're at school? This is absurd. Uh, and it turned out cell phones were kind of a big deal. Um, and but, but, but people weren't sure. Uh people weren't sure about the internet. You know, there was is this really gonna be valuable? People weren't sure about the personal computer. I remember people saying this was one of Steve Jobs' problems is that he was a little bit ahead of his time with the early Apple computers because people said, Oh, computers are they're technical tools. They're for scientists, they're for engineers, they're for academics, you know, normal people aren't gonna need computers. What would a normal person do with a computer? Um, and I think Jobs was one of the early people to say no i think people will find these quite useful uh but the light bulb was different because the light bulb was obviously useful you know for a hundred years by this point uh people had been trying to build them you know people knew gas lamps had problems. Uh, they were—I mean—they worked, but they were flickery and they were dull and they weren't that bright and they smelled terrible and they had this unfortunate habit of lighting stuff on fire all the time. Um, you know, they were pretty flammable. Uh, so, so they had these like obvious flaws. And so, you know, for a hundred years across the world, you had all these different inventors kind of trying and registering patents and trying to develop functional, safe, indoor electrical light, because everybody knew uh, how valuable it was, uh, and that's when Thomas Edison stepped in. And I think that sense of, there's this famous story where Edison spends a few years, gets it working, and then he, uh, he announces to the press that he's, he's made the light bulb work. And he, does, I mean, he doesn't even, at this point, he hasn't even done a demonstration. He, he literally just sends a press release. To all the New York papers. The day after that, the stocks of every major gas company in the world dropped twenty percent because Edison mm-hmm. sent out a press release. Well. Wow. I made electrical light work. That was how big a deal this was. Um, and I mean, the gas companies were terrified because uh, they assumed it was impossible. And then, of course, you have all these academics who jumped in and said, "Oh, Edison didn't make it work. There's no way to do it. This breaks every known law of science. You know, you can't." Every scientist knows that indoor electrical light isn't possible, you know, there's there's no way he made it work and sure enough he had. But that was that was what was so strange. Everyone at the time knew and that's why the stakes were so high in the lawsuit, you know, when I talk about the value of Edison's lawsuit against Westinghouse being being valued at a billion dollars in eighteen eighty eight, which you can imagine is some real money. It's because everyone knew what this was going to be, that whoever controlled the light bulb was going to control the entire American electrical system.
0: we uh, it's, it's a fascinating read, The Last Days of Night. Uh, the author is Graham Moore. He's the New York Times bestselling author of The Sherlockian. His screenplay for The Imitation Game won the Academy Award. Uh, and uh, Graham Moore has joined us. Uh, by the way, uh, Graham Moore's website is mrgrahammoore.com. Graham Moore, thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for chatting. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Hope you join me uh, tomorrow for the program. Uh, We are going to uh, jump into the very fascinating uh, uh, topic of language. How fascinating, as fascinating to you as it is to me, uh, such questions as do women talk more than men? Does text messaging make you stupid? Can chimpanzees really talk to us? Um, The book is Women Talk More Than Men and Other Myths About Language Explained. Abby Kaplan, assistant professor of linguistics at University of Utah, will join me. Hope you'll join me as well.
3: So I've got a question for you guys. Why do you volunteer at Utah Public Radio?
0: Well, it's because I support quality programming.
3: I like to volunteer to support the local NPR member station. You get to watch the people do what they do, make radio magic. That sounds awesome. I want to volunteer. How do I sign up? The pledge drive is September 10th to the 16th. Just go to upr.org. That's upr.org. And look for the blue box to sign up for your time slot.
2: On the next radio lab, we found these like fields. a whole hilltop, fields just covered in this this. It was so eerie. it was... <sighs> I haven't seen anything like that before. Yellow. Yellow, fluffy, fluffy stuff. Stuff, 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 stuff. Hidden worlds. Whoa. What's that? And here we are still on Earth. We're not in outer space. We're not on the Moon. Here we are on Earth. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
3: Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU Logan. Also heard at UPR.org.